to the people of Vaughan for your confidence and faith. I am so, so humbled with the support to be your next mayor of this incredible city. It's time for a change. That's what the people of Ottawa wanted. But it is also time for unity. It is also time for a common purpose, no matter where you live. There is no doubt that we do not agree on everything, but we all love this city. Thank you, Toronto. I've delivered a number of these speeches on election nights, and you know, some of them were good, and some of them, to be candid, weren't so good. But tonight is a great night as we look ahead to a third term. We refuse to engage in the ugly side of politics and focus on what we've achieved for Brampton over the last four years and what we hope to achieve in the next four. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And my name is Mark Tui, your host this afternoon for the next uh, couple of uh, hours. That was a montage of some of the winners in Ontario's municipal election race, which uh, concluded yesterday with Election Day. A lot of mayors uh, winning uh, uh, their re-election, returning to the job. Some of them, uh, I don't know, did anybody, no, no one was unseated that I recall, but uh, uh, some uh, challengers, some new faces amongst the mayors, some many new faces on city councils and regional councils across Ontario. Uh, British Columbia went through this process a couple of weeks back. And uh, that was a montage of the winners. I'd like to talk for a moment, though, to some of the many thousands of losers in the municipal elections yesterday across Ontario, as well as people who've won or run and lost in elections, provincial, federal, municipal across the country. Here's some of the losing voices in Ontario from last night. Or to live here. You know that I never shy away from difficult situations. And there were quite a few that presented themselves on the campaign trail. We persevered. We have so much to be proud of. Let's keep supporting our local businesses, helping our neighbors, protecting our green spaces, and caring about our community. That's the power of community. And that's what this campaign was always about. So thank you, my friends. I love you all so much. Good night. And uh, some of the losing voices uh, running for mayors across the province of Ontario last night. You may recognize them, or you might not, because quite frankly, they didn't deserve to win, by and large. Some of them put up a decent uh, opposition. None of them uh, came close except uh, in Vaughan and uh, where uh, former uh, Liberal Party leader uh, Stephen Del Duca eked out a squeaker of a win with just, I think, a few hundred votes over his uh, opponent. Uh, Andrew Horvath also came very close to losing uh, what seemed to be a sure thing in the city of Hamilton. But for those of you whose candidates didn't win, take heart. There's another election. There's always another election coming up. For those of you who were candidates or who have thought about becoming a candidate, take note. If you didn't win, it's probably because you didn't deserve to win. And, and you know, pardon the tough love, but that's the truth. I've worked with political candidates who've lost. I've worked with political candidates who have won. And so here's some advice. If you want to be the mayor of your town the member of parliament for your riding, the member of provincial parliament, the member of legislative assembly, the member of the national assembly for your provincial district, 
your city councilor, your reeve, in the next election, you need to start now. In Toronto, the guy who came closest that people thought might have had a slim hope of beating John Tory is a guy named Gil Penalosa. He didn't win. He didn't come close. He got uh, 18, less than 18% of the vote. John Tory got 62% of the vote. There were 31 people running for mayor in the city of Toronto. That's not unusual. It's usually higher than that. But I have to go down one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There are only seven candidates, including John Tory, who got 62%, Gil Penalosa with under just under 18%. There are only seven candidates who got over 1% of the vote. The rest of you, frankly, didn't deserve to be on the ballot. But you can be on the ballot anywhere you want. But if you really want to win, you have to start now. Because here's some things that you did wrong if you were one of these many hundreds, thousands of losers in yesterday's Ontario provincial election or in any of the, not provincial election, but municipal elections in Ontario uh, or in the provincial election that happened in the summer or in British Columbia's municipal elections that happened a couple of weeks back or in the upcoming uh, municipal elections in many other provinces and territories across Canada, or the next federal, or the next provincial, whatever. You've got to do some things. The one thing that I ask uh, political candidates, whenever they ask me for advice, my first question to them is, why are you running? And 50 to 60% of them say exactly the same thing. Well, you know, I think it's time, I want to give back to the community. And I give them the same advice as I'll give you through the magic of radio, which is then give back to the community. You don't have to be elected for that. You don't have to get a pretty decent paying job in most places in order to give back to the community. Just start giving back to the community. If you want to win in four years' time in Toronto or anywhere municipally in Ontario, start today. The people who won won because we already knew who they were. You have four years, so you can get into a position where we already know who you are. If you've ever sold anything, if you've ever worked in a corner store, you've had a sales job, how hard is it to sell people something that they don't already want? Like when somebody comes into the grocery store, they, won't, they know they want food. So they pick out the food that they want, and then if they can afford the price... They buy it. If you're selling cars, people come to your lot often already knowing that they want a car. It's just your job to negotiate the price. But if somebody walks by your car lot, trying to convince them that they should want a car is a very different, much more difficult task. And that's the task you're in as a political candidate. You need to already... You need to talk to people who already know they want you, and you just need to help them figure out how to vote for you. If you are, like Gil Penalosa, the closest, next best choice in the city of Toronto, he needed to start four years ago, not four months ago. We needed to already know who he was before the election started. We needed to already be saying, boy, wouldn't he be a good mayor before the election started? That's why John Tory is in part mayor, because we all knew who he was before he ran. He'd run and lost before. But he was a talk show host. Everybody knew who he was. People were telling him that he should be mayor. Lots of people. Same thing with uh, Mark Sutcliffe, the new mayor in the city of Ottawa. Comes from a radio background. Doesn't mean he's going to be any good at being a mayor, but it gives him a huge advantage because you already know who he is. And that, 
makes a huge difference. So you've got to do something between now and four years from now to get recognized as a person in your community who leads, who deserves to be in an elected office. You need to deserve to win before you even put your name on the ballot. We need better candidates. We need better choices. I was forced yesterday to vote for somebody I didn't really want because the choices were so poor. I don't like being in that position as a voter. You can fix it. You need to start now. You need to actually do something for your community so you deserve to win. You need to make a lot of friends. You need to know a lot of people. You should know, you should meet every single voter in your ward, your riding, your district, your city between now and the next election four years from now if you really want to win. You really seriously need to knock on every single door. That's tens of thousands of doors. You can do it. You must do it. They need to see you. You got to put in the work. You've got to make friends who will donate to you. Don't ask your friends, hey, would you vote for me? Every one of your friends will say yes and then not go out to vote. Ask them if they'll give you their money. And you need to find people that will give you their money. Because in a place like Toronto, if you can't spend the limit, two and a half million dollars, you're not going to win. When we come back, we are going to talk with a surgeon who has a better way to fix people. It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tui back with you this afternoon. Thanks so much for listening. One of the reasons I love talk radio is that talk radio allows us to discuss and to debate and to explore and to discover new, exciting ideas in an environment where you get to listen. Sometimes you get to participate. And the reason why that's important is I've worked in government before, and government is an incredibly non-innovative space. It is just not well-suited to coming up with creative solutions to problems for many, many reasons I'm not going to get into here. And so it's difficult for government to think its way out of problems that it took decades, generations to get into. We need other people to help with the creativity, talk radio can help facilitate that, in part because you participate often when we open the phone lines and decision makers across this country listen to talk radio. Politicians listen to talk radio. They often call in. They participate in talk radio. They get ideas. They hear your ideas. They hear your feedback directly, unfiltered through talk radio. And so that influences thinking and policy and their staffs do the same and civil servants do the same. And so exploring new ideas, I think, is a pivotal component of good talk radio. One of those good ideas is what I want to discuss next. Healthcare is a challenge that Canadians have faced for generations. We have had problems in trying to figure out how to do this thing better my entire life. And so we're stuck now with a, a situation where we've worked ourselves into, into a challenge. The cost of healthcare is soaring through the roof. Almost 50% of every tax dollar is spent on healthcare. We can't keep spending more. So we need to come up with some creative ideas. So when I see one, 
I love to bring it to you and share it with you. My guest joining us now is Dr. Abdel Rahman Alawendi. He's Chief and Medical Director of the Ambulatory Surgical Center at London's Health Sciences Center. Dr. Lawendi, welcome to News Talk today. Hi, thank you for having me. So you took an, you are an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, you're the guy in charge of the ambulatory side, at least if not all orthopedic surgeries at the London Health Sciences Center. You looked at how the organization there, the hospital there, was doing surgeries. The wait time can be incredibly long for people that need orthopedic surgeries. And you said, you know what, if we focus on the ambulatory patients, we might be able to actually push them through the system with just as good care, still fully publicly funded and delivered, but in a much better way by creating specialized operating rooms instead of leaning into the general purpose operating rooms. Is that what you did? And how did you do that? So, yes, I guess the idea uh, was really, if you look, I work in a very large hospital at the London Health Sciences Center. So we have two campuses and it's a tertiary quaternary care center, meaning that it's one of these hospitals that will um, do any type of surgery. So that ranges from transplant, cardiac, large cancer surgery, uh, pediatric surgery, trauma surgery. But it also looks after the general community uh, with uh, less acute planned surgery. However, when you look at the very large hospitals that we have, and we do have some very sizable uh, first-in-class, best-in-class hospitals in Ontario. Um, the problem is, is that there is an inefficiency that happens when you have, or a diseconomy of scale that happens in a mega hospital when you're processing multiple, multiple thousands of surgeries uh, a year. And basically what we tried to do was extract the cases that could be done in a more standardized, optimized fashion so that patients could be treated but be pulled out of the, the queue that occurs within the large hospital system. So the basic idea was try to make those more efficient at a less cost uh, to the hospital. But, you know, as I've stated before several times, it's not about less cost for us. It's more about treating more patients in the same cost envelope. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's an important way to look at it because we're, you know, when any any creative solution to a problem comes by understanding exactly what you're trying to do. And you've just sort of made the point that you're, it's not that you're trying to save money. It's that you're trying to process, and that's probably the wrong word, but, you know, to treat more patients uh, with quality care in a shorter uh, a period of time. And so where you might have a standard, let's call it a general purpose operating room that would be have all of the tools, all of the, te- all of the uh, equipment that's required, all of the staff required to handle just about anything that might be thrown at it during the day, including a hip replacement or a, an ACL repair for somebody's knee. I don't know if that's where the ACL is. But, uh, you know, you're trying to funnel, use a general purpose room, which we would think might be the best way to do it with a low, the least amount of money. But you're saying if we take all these patients that have something similar, you could, you decided that you could put them into a specialized surgical operating room that only did that. And so you only needed the equipment, you only needed the staff in order to deal with patients with a much narrower range of requirements who were ambulatory so they could walk in and they could walk out and you could process so many more people through more efficiently, not cheaper, 
but they get great quality care in much less time than they might otherwise. And could that model be replicated for other uh, circumstances that isn't just sort of orthopedic ambulatory surgery. I know Shoulders is a private clinic. We were talking only about public here, but they kind of do the same thing for hernia. So is this a model that we could maybe speed up access to care on a bigger scale? Yeah. So, I mean, the, essentially what's happened is we're giving each patient uh, what they need instead of everything all the time. So, in this system, we've matched the anesthesia resources, the nursing resources, the surgical intensity and the equipment to the patient. Instead of saying we should plan for all surgeries at all time, we're planning for the specific surgery uh, with what that patient needs. And by doing that, and, and industry has done this long ago, uh, that you know you standardize and optimize the process. So. We do, in fact, come in, if you compare it to a standard operating room at a lower cost. But again, because we're dealing with a budget and a public system, what we translate to is more patients. So you do, in fact, decrease the cost per case, but we don't take that as a cost saving. We take it as we can treat more patients in the same envelope. Which is the challenge we're facing now. You've got lineups of patients who can't get care. Uh, we can't necessarily afford to throw more money at it. So within the same envelope, if we did things a little differently, you might be able to move those patients through quality care much more efficiently. Uh, Dr. Lowendi, uh, before I let you go, I guess one of the concerns people might have would be, okay, so if I'm in a surgical center that's away from a hospital that specializes in knee repair, what happens if you get into the procedure and something goes wrong and, uh, and I need life-saving intervention? So we, before we moved this out of the hospital, we, we piloted almost 1,000 cases to ensure our safety uh, in terms of moving it out. But we follow very strict and rigidly controlled protocols that's done exactly the same way in the hospital. We're all the same uh, you know, this is essentially an extension of our main campus hospital. So there's no change in protocol. Uh, there is no uh, change in safety or evacuation procedure. So if something were to go wrong, we, we do have the policies, procedures, uh, and capability to give the patient the care they need. And I imagine if I was a patient who was at a higher risk of something going wrong, I probably wouldn't be a candidate to go into this surgical center. Yeah, so we do have... A selection bias. So we screen the patients very intensely before they're able to come in this based on uh, various health categories, comorbidities, the surgery they're having, likelihood of blood loss, uh, the length of the procedure. All of these things are carefully calculated before you can get in there. So it's not it's not everything for everyone. It's there's there's a very careful mm -hmm. screening process to ensure that it's safe. Dr. Abdel Rahman Lowendi, Chief and Medical Director of Ambulatory Surgical Center at London Health Sciences Center. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your idea with us. My pleasure. Thank you. I think we need to keep an open mind when it comes to our healthcare system. We need to look at these things. We need to test them as Dr. Lowendi has done. We need to look at the results. It looks like it works. There are physicians and surgeons from across Canada that have come to his surgery center uh, to look at how it works. It's 100% publicly funded. It's 100% publicly delivered. This might be part of, not the entire, but part of the answer.
Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Watching uh, some of the many news feeds in the studio here and uh, in the uh, provincial legislature in Ontario right now, opposition members standing up during question period demanding answers from uh, the, uh, maybe that actually was uh, pre-taped, I'm not sure. Anyway, the opposition all over the Ontario Premier, Doug Ford, uh, asking him to explain why he doesn't want to appear at the Public Order Emergencies Commission, even though he has been subpoenaed to do so. Uh, we'll take up that issue in the next segment and to perhaps hear a reason why he should fight the order to appear. But right now, I wanted to talk about something else that Ontario is doing. They're taking a page out of British Columbia's book. British Columbia, about a year ago, brought in, maybe longer than a year ago, brought in a foreign home buyer's tax to beat up on the evil foreigners who are buying all of our homes and driving up the cost of housing so we can't afford it. British Columbia raised a lot of money doing that, and uh, Ontario last year did the same. They brought in a, I think it was a 15% to 20% increase, a 15% tax initially only for houses in the greater Golden Horseshoe area of southern Ontario. Yesterday, the Ontario government announced that they were hiking that up to 25% for foreign home buyers who are buying homes, they say, to speculate and flip them and just make money. And that that's going to solve, in part, the housing crisis in Ontario, where Ontario is looking to build one and a half million homes over the next 10 years, 150,000 per year. The most Ontario has ever built in a single year is 87,000. So that is a stretch goal. Yesterday, they said they expect that uh, this will raise a lot of money for the province. So far, their foreign homebuyers tax has brought in $175 million in the current fiscal year, increasing it up to 25%. Surely will build, bring in more money for government, just what government needs. Maybe they'll spend that on building affordable homes. I don't know. But it causes me to pose an interesting question, and I would love to hear from you at one eight five five six three three ten ten, And that is, what is the purpose of housing? Because we're talking about how to make more of it. We're talking about measures to increase the affordability of housing. But underlying all of these moves, especially this one, which I think is pretty cynical because I don't think foreign home buyers are that big a problem in the market today, I could be wrong. The government seems to think they're big enough to throw this new tax at them. But it underlies it. It causes us to ask, what's the purpose of housing? Because there is a move growing amongst many, including, it would appear, federal governments, provincial governments across Canada that are punishing people for investing in housing. The move seems to be to say that housing is for you to live in. The only reason to ever buy a property is for you personally to live in it, saying that it is wrong, it is morally wrong to buy a home that you will not live in. That's the gist of what this new tax is about. You shouldn't buy property as an investment. You should only buy it as a domicile, as a shelter. Do you agree with that? one eight five five six three three. 1010, because that seems to be the prevailing ideology that's driving a lot of government policy. There's an article in Toronto, in Toronto Life magazine, talking to city councillors who left 
uh, city council, didn't run for re-election. And they're talking about, oh, it's very interesting. You should have a look at it if you get a chance. But they're talking about, oh, my God, there was an evil person who owned 22 rooming houses, which provided rental accommodations for, I don't know, two, 300 people, probably. But they suggested it was wrong to buy a property as an investment. For generations, Canadians have relied on their own homes, if they own one, as their retirement fund. When they've had extra money, especially in the booming times, we have invested in second properties that we might rent out or just, you know, watch the equity value, the value of the home increase and become part of our nest egg that we might hand down to our children. The prevailing ideology behind a lot of the policy and the housing policy we're talking about now is that that's wrong, is that your home should be where you live, not where you save your money, not where you earn your retirement, not where you build your nest egg. And I initially sort of think that's wrong, but but where do you stand? At one 1010 you can text me at 71010 as well. Because if that's the case, then a lot of these policy moves make sense. But it fundamentally alters how we look at real estate, doesn't it? It suggests that you should be saving money through some other form of investment, not your home, not another home that you don't list in, live in. I mean, I rent. You know, if the person that owns my condo didn't own it and rent it to me, where would I live? Like, I can't afford to buy. Will it come down to be so affordable so fast that I could move from rental to ownership? I don't know. But is that really where we want to go as a society, punishing people for owning homes they don't live in as revenue-generating properties, as investments for the future? 855-633-1010. Let's hear from Michael in Laval. Yes, good. good morning. How are you? I'm well. What do you think? Should you own a home if you don't plan to live in it? I would hesitate to make that statement. Um, you know, people have a right to buy houses for rental purposes. Uh, the question is, of course, is if you're offshore and you're boosting the prices up, which, of course, an investigation in British Columbia has proven to be the case in terms of Vancouver housing, where offshore buyers coming in with massive amounts of cash have have proven to have raised the house prices there. And now, of course, that's happening across the country. But but saying that's wrong, then, suggests that the only legitimate purpose for a home is as a shelter. I would tend to disagree, but there is another problem regarding our housing crisis, and that is uh, immigration. We have too much. I mean, you know, this government has doubled the immigration Where do these people go? They automatically flock to our major cities where there's a housing crisis. So is the problem the number of immigrants or the fact that we should somehow attempt to constrain where they live? Perhaps a bit of both. And we have, for example, the the open border on Roxham Road, which allows... Yeah, I don't. I don't want to get into that. That that that's kind of way off topic. But I appreciate no, where you're coming because from. Because where are they going to live? Thanks, Michael. Good point. Uh, we do have, and that is what's driving. I mean, but Canada is a nation. 
that was founded on immigration, and it is an economy that depends, desperately clings to immigration as the only way to keep our economy going. So we're going to keep having new people coming into our country. They do need to live somewhere. Should uh, Sunny in Richmond Hill, should your home only exist as a place for you to live, not a place for you to invest? No, it, it shouldn't be that because there are many factors that has affected this. Our homes have become our pensions because we have demolished the pension system. I can remember when I came to this country, companies had pensions. Today, they don't have a pension, but they give you a certain amount of money to invest it yourself. But there is no security on that. So most of the people that own homes use it as their pension. Do you think we should be discouraging foreigners from buying homes? Most countries spend an enormous amount of money, Canada included, trying to encourage people from overseas to invest here. Now we're punishing them for that. That's my second point. We seem to forget in the late 90s, if it wasn't for the people from Hong Kong, most of the housing here that went to Chinese buy saved our country in terms of the property market. Do you believe you do you remember yeah. that you couldn't sell a house in the late 90s yeah. for a price that wasn't below its value? Thanks very much, Sonny. I appreciate your uh, call. Yeah, I think this is a conversation we need to have because foreign home buyers tax, that's punishing foreign direct investment in the country, something that we spend millions in other government departments trying to encourage. Anyway. Uh, All of this needs to be debated at length, and talk radio might very well be the place to have that conversation. When we come back, Ontario Premier Doug Ford says he is going to fight a summons. Should he? Somebody's going to argue yes. It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tui uh, sitting in as your host uh, today. Pleasure to talk with you. Uh, my goodness, fireworks erupted in Ontario when the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, said that his government would fight a uh, summons to appear for him and his uh, Solicitor General, Sylvia Jones. May have the names as she was at the time, the solicitor. General. I think she's moved on to health now. In any case, uh, himself and a minister were summoned by the Public Order Inquiry uh, Commission that is uh, looking into the convoy protest in uh, Ottawa. Uh, there was a bit of, uh, you know, he said, she said about, well, I was never invited. Uh, the inquiry says, no, yes, you were. In any case, the uh, inquiry has now issued a summons to both the Premier Doug Ford and one of his cabinet ministers. Doug Ford and his cabinet minister have said their government will go to court to block that summons. Can they do that? Uh, Interesting debate. Uh, Most people think, myself included, think that Doug Ford should appear and should answer questions. I think that would be helpful. I think it would actually make him probably look good. But uh, because a lot of people have been putting words in his mouth in the inquiry over the last uh, week or so, saying, oh, well, the premier did this or the premier said that, it'd be interesting to hear from him directly what he said. Politics aside, though, I think 
he probably has to fight this summons because I think it might set. This is Mark Tui's armchair lawyering, having having taken half a course at a correspondence course from a British law school on the law. I don't know anything about the law, but I think that maybe they have to fight this. And so here uh, to help set my interpretation of law straight, my guest is Gavin Tai, a senior partner with Gardner Roberts LLP and a chair of the firm's litigation and dispute resolution group. Gavin, welcome to News Talk today. Hello, Mark. Thanks very much. So very quickly, I know that you have in the past uh, represented either uh, Doug Ford uh, personally or his government or his party. Uh, Are you acting for the government on this case? Do you speak today on their behalf? Absolutely not. I don't act for the government on this. This is an issue certainly for the Ministry of the Attorney General. It's not an issue that is unprecedented. There have been many ministries of the Attorney General in the past, both in Canada and pretty much everywhere where there's a British parliamentary democracy that has uh, uh, fought these types of inquiries previously. So here's my question as uh, somebody who like he finds the law fascinating, he's never really studied, certainly is not a lawyer. Uh, I My understanding is that this commission of inquiry, judicial inquiry, it's headed by a judge, has the powers, was given the powers of uh, to summons people as if it was a civil court. But my understanding too is that there are some protections for sitting members of parliament and members of provincial parliament that would exempt them from being summoned by a civil court. So does the inquiry, does a civil court have the power to compel a sitting premier and a cabinet minister to show up and give testimony? Well, the short answer to that question is yes, but there's a a very strong uh, presumption of privilege in regards to what goes on in a cabinet meeting. And, you know, for listeners, they may say, oh, well, they're just, you know, they're pulling the drapes around this. But this is a longstanding tradition, as I said, in um, British parliamentary uh, system that we that we uh, follow here in Canada. I mean, it goes to what the Supreme Court of Canada has said, the strong public interest in maintaining the confidentiality of deliberations among ministers of the crown. And it really relates to that. And I mean, Mark, you've been in the inner halls of government uh, before you know what goes on, uh, it, it, uh, you know, when I was thinking about the interview, it's kind of like what happens in the cabinet room is kind of like sausages. You, you don't really want to see how they're made. Uh, and that's sort of what you need to happen in a cabinet uh, discussion. Everyone needs to be able to be free uh, to to have their views, uh, to, ha- to have disagree with each other, to argue, uh, I would expect often uh, strongly in favor of one side or another. But when it's all said and done and the doors of the cabinet room open and the government comes out, they should speak with one voice. Uh, and that's really what this is all about. There are certain types of environments and relationships in our society where we as a society believe that, you know, there should be a, an ability to speak freely uh, and that that type of speech should be protected. I can think of a number of them, mm-hmm. lawyer clients, uh, you know, confessions in, in uh, a priest penitent. There's a number, doctor patient. There's all sorts of relationships like that where if people were afraid uh, that what they said was going to be brought out and published all over the place, they wouldn't speak their mind. And when in a cabinet room, you have the people in that room, you pick your cabinet ministers because you want to hear what they've got to say. And if they're afraid that what they say is going to be aired out later, uh, they're going to keep their mouth shut. And that's not good for anybody. So no blanket protection from a summons from a court or a this uh, inquiry. But then... 
what's the grounds for the government to argue against it? I mean, he and the the minister could just show up and then every time they're asked a question that would violate cabinet confidence, they could just say, I can't answer that. It's cabinet confidence. Well, yeah, it goes to really a, a larger issue, which is really not an issue of cabinet confidences or privileges. It's really about relevance and all evidence in every proceeding uh, that's ever before any court or tribunal of any description, the the questions and the information have to be relevant. And from what I've seen so far, you've got a couple of counsel for some of the parties. Basically, they're saying, well, we'd like to know what they have to say. Um, and, you know, inquiring minds want to know is not the test for relevance in a judicial <laughs> proceeding. So the, the issue here, to my mind, is what does the provincial government have to say about this? I mean, this and I think the, the context here is quite important. Um, you know, I don't know that I've heard a lot about this in the media. Some people may have talked about it, but this is not a voluntary inquiry that the federal government has has brought on because they're interested in full disclosure. They they have to bring this inquiry. It's mandated under the legislation. When you uh, call into effect the Emergencies Act, one of the requirements is you're going to have to have a judicial inquiry with respect to that into, and I'm quoting the legislation, the circumstances that led to the declaration being issued and the measures taken for dealing with the emergency after the fact. So that's where we are here. And remember, the only time that this has ever been used before is 30 years ago in the in the War Measures Act at the time, in the October crisis, where the, at that time there were 200 bombings and six people dead. So uh, just about out of time, uh, Gavin Types, but uh, a last question then. So you would expect then the government's argument is going to be based on there's no evidence. There's no. There's no reason to believe that uh, any questions asked or the answers given would be relevant to the core mandate of the commission, which is to find out whether the Emergencies Act was properly instituted. I got about sixty seconds for you. Well, that that you've hit the threshold question in my mind right on the money. That's the the national issue. What do they have to add to this? What do they add to the? What is the scope of this inquiry? And if if they if they can persuade uh, the a court that they do have something that is relevant to why the federal government uh, invoked this legislation, then the question becomes whether or not that relevant, potentially relevant evidence is protected by what we talked about in terms of the cabinet privilege. So there's a twofold test that needs to go forward. I think somebody needs to explain what the relevance is, that would be the first thing I'd like to know about. So uh, about 15 seconds. Is there a, a fear then on the government's part that this could set a bad precedent in law? I, I think it is. I think there is a fear that it could set a bad precedent because cabinet privileges, I said initially, exist for a reason. You want people to be able to speak their mind freely. You don't want them to be guarded. You want to hear what the cabinet ministers around the table really think, and you don't want them to be worried about recriminations mm-hmm. later. Gavin Tai, senior partner with Gardner Roberts LLP and a chair of the firm's litigation dispute resolution group. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Mark. So interesting. In fact, uh, you'll remember that uh, cabinet confidence was one of the reasons why the uh, Trudeau government didn't want to cough up a whole bunch of documentary evidence requested, demanded, in fact, uh, by members of parliament and previous committees, as well as this inquiry. We'll be back after the top of the hour. Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. 
Hey, welcome back. It is Mark Tui with you this afternoon. Thanks so much for listening along. I really appreciate the conversation. The uh, Toronto Star reporting today that the Trudeau government will invest a billion dollars to construct a new reactor at the Darlington nuclear site, which I think is good news for Canada because I think nuclear power is our path forward. If we're serious, and we may or may not be, about, uh, you know, addressing climate change, about addressing greenhouse gas emissions, about greener power... I think nuclear power is probably the best choice for the base load of power that we need. In Ontario, 60-65% of our power comes from nuclear, but that is an aging fleet of nuclear reactors. The provincial government a month ago announced that it was going to refurbish one, I think at Pickering, uh, to extend its lifespan. It's obvious. It's the no-brainer, I think, uh, but a lot of people are afraid of nuclear. For obvious reasons, they're concerned about uh, nuclear safety. There have been a few isolated incidents at nuclear power plants uh, around the world throughout history that they're afraid of. But I think the biggest fear for most Canadians is what do you do with nuclear waste? But I don't think many of us fully understand how you manage nuclear waste. I think from what I have read, from what I learned as a nuclear biological and chemical warfare officer in the in the military, from, you know, the research that I've done as a political uh, staffer and policy guy, I think that's eminently and easily manageable. But what do people who worry about the planet's health for a, a business, they're, they're living, they're activists, what do they think? My guest right now joining us on News Talk today is Richard Carlson, Director of Energy at Pollution Probe. Richard, this uh, move to basically reinvest at least somewhat in nuclear power generation, which apparently when it's online would power 300,000 homes, I think it's good news, but uh, you've got the future of the planet in mind. Uh, what do you say? Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me here today. It's, it is, it could be considered good news depending on what we're trying to do. I agree with you. We need to start moving towards a net zero energy system. And as, of course, coming from Pollution Probe, we, we are advocating for moving towards net zero. And there are many ways of getting there. Nuclear is one that many places are talking about, including Ontario. And it should be noted that Ontario is already investing about $25 billion in the refurbishment of the Bruce reactors, the six reactors at Bruce, as well as at the Darlington plants as well. So if we look at what we'll need is we're definitely going to be needing a lot more electricity in the future as more people drive electric vehicles, as we start to electrify our heating and removing getting off of natural gas. Now we need to start considering what are the different options we have available to us and how we can move as quickly as we possibly can. Yes, I've spent a lot of time talking with uh, electrical engineers and people who run Ontario's uh, electrical system, and they explained to me, and if I understand it, it's basically there's sort of three types of power generation. There's base load. We know that on average we're going to need X number of uh, you know megawatts uh, all the time, and so that right now in Ontario comes from things that like nuclear and hydro, things that are on, but you can't really just turn them on and off. So when 16 other people throw on their air conditioners, there's a little spike. Somebody has to generate that power the instant that it's required. We can't necessarily depend on solar 
and uh, and wind power for those instant on instant off applications because they they don't lend themselves well to that until there's better sort of store energy storage capacity or the ability to put it in batteries and draw it when we need it so we used to fill the gap with uh, with coal and uh, with gas because you could turn it on you could turn it off almost instantaneously but we've got rid of coal we're getting down uh, you know we're we're weaning off of gas uh you know how much more nuclear actually do we need? Because it seems to me that it's still that missing middle piece that's the problem. Well, I, I don't think looking at it uh, through a base load lens or peaking lens is necessarily the right way of doing it. We are going to be needing a lot of different generation sources. And what we have seen, if you look at the models internationally, is that a diverse a, a diverse set of technologies is probably the, is the best path forward. We will be needing something. You wind and solar and all the models you look at are providing the majority of the power. And storage will, and the government has committed to investing more in storage. And storage will play a huge role. But you're right. We do need what I prefer to call the firm sources of power, those that can be relied upon all the time to generate. And in Ontario, that is currently provide, being provided by um, by nuclear. But nuclear is not necessarily the only way of doing that. There are other technologies people could use. Quebec is using hydropower, but we don't have the hydropower here. Geothermal is another option. Carbon capture and storage is another option. And nuclear is an option we should be looking at as well. But I think it's important to think that we need, we're going to need a diverse set and there's not going to be one silver bullet that gets us to where we want to, where we want to get to. And wind and solar, if you look at it for on a gen energy basis is the cheapest around, but you're right. It does have the limitations. So how do we balance out the need and how do we consider what are the different types of energy sources we need? And unfortunately, there's no one silver bullet to, to get us there. Uh, Richard Carlson is Director of Energy at Pollution Probe. Uh, Richard, we've got about uh, two minutes. I'd love to ask a couple of questions, hopefully, in that time. Uh, one, the concern about nuclear waste. To me, it seems like you know, nuclear science is pretty mature and we seem to understand the risks and the requirements. It doesn't seem like that is a showstopper in reality, but I think some of the fears are overblown. How do you manage nuclear waste? Is it a problem? Dealing with nuclear waste is a problem everywhere in the world. It is regardless of whether or not we build new nuclear reactors, we're going to have to deal with it because we do have the operating reactors we have now. Uh, we are, that is something that, that the industry really has to find a path forward because you are looking at waste that is going to be radioactive for thousands of years and we need to figure out the best way of storing it. And the nuclear waste management organization is looking into it, but it is, it is an industry problem and something that we really need to look at. Yeah, but it doesn't seem to be a large volume. And so it, what it needs is to be sequestered in a place where it's not going to leach out. And we seem to have those things, don't we? Well, I'm told we do have those things, but it is it it is something that is you know you need to be really really careful about. So this is something that really we really need to make sure that this is safe that we're not just we're not just saying it is safe, but that we're actually demonstrating that it is going to be safe for the thousands of years. You're right; it's maybe the volume is not a lot, 
but it is it is nuclear waste that does need to be managed properly. Uh, Richard Carlson, about uh, forty five seconds. Are we looking at the right type of nuclear? This is a this is a big nuclear plant. The federal government is investing in, as are the other ones that provincial government and the private companies. I think at Bruce are investing in. Should we be looking at alternatives like these new uh, tiny little modular nukes as a better source? The government. The government has indicated that we're moving in that way, and that is definitely where the industry seems to be going. So if Canada wants to follow the industry, that would be likely the best place to look at it and see what are the different roles, what's the best technology. Pollution Probe did a report a few months back looking at the role of SMRs, industrial decarbonization, and what kind of role it could play there. So there is a lot of opportunity on SMRs. And Canada small, could play a small, big role. Small modular reactor is that what that is? No, so yeah, the small modular reactors, like the one being produced, like the one being funded at Darlington. And so we, there is a lot of opportunity and a lot of international interest. So if Canada is going to going to go down the nuclear path, we try to make sure that we are at the forefront in order to help not only Canada decarbonize but other other jurisdictions decarbonize as well. Richard Carlson, Director of Energy at Pollution Probe, thanks very much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. I think nuclear is uh, is something we have to keep on the table. I'm glad to see government reinvesting in it. I'm excited by the small modular reactors and the opportunities to sort of, uh, you know, to use that proven technology in more innovative and flexible ways. Because right now you create power in one place, then you gotta you got to pipe it through wires and we lose a lot of power all the way to where we want to use it. When we come back, what's a dirty bomb and is Russia actually talking serious about it? Staying on the story. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. One of the things I love to do when I have a chance, uh, the great privilege of being able to speak with you, my name is Mark Tui, uh, is to uh, to remind all of us, myself included, that there is a horrific war underway that it's easy for us to forget about in Ukraine. Russia having invaded Ukraine in February and conducting, uh, you know, a, a brutal uh, murderous uh, slaughter of uh, people too often directly targeting civilians there. Uh, the Russians say, oh, that's all propaganda, but all of the evidence seems to suggest otherwise. Uh, joining us to get to the bottom of a couple of specific things that I had questions on is uh, our a friend here on News Talk today. David Fraser is a uh, retired major general in the Canadian Army, a decorated uh, military officer, one of the uh, First uh, Canadians uh, to command American and international troops in combat uh, since the Second World War when he commanded uh, American and Canadian and NATO troops in Afghanistan. And uh, since retiring from the Canadian forces uh, after 32 years of service, he's been working in the private sector. General Fraser, welcome to News Talk today. Mark, good to be with you. So a couple of things I wanted to touch on. One, about uh, all the talk we're hearing the last uh, few days about dirty bombs and false flag operations. And then I want to ask you some questions about the uh, the Russian use of uh, targeted missiles, cruise missiles, etc. 
uh, against civilian targets. If we start with uh, dirty bombs, we're hearing a Russian uh, perhaps propaganda suggesting that they believe Ukraine has a plan to explode a dirty bomb inside Ukraine in a false flag operation, blame it on Russia so that the world hates Russia. Uh, a lot of people saying, well, that's crazy, but there's also fear that, well, maybe Russia plans to use a dirty bomb in Ukraine, and because they've said in advance that this will be a false flag operation, they hope to get some cover from that. Let's start with the basics. What is a dirty bomb? Well, simplistically, if you go to the uh, doctors and whatnot, and if you get an MRI or an x-ray machine, there's probably radioactive isotopes in that machine. And, you know, people can take those isotopes out, uh, wrap a bunch of explosives around them, blow them up, and now you've got radioactive materials spread throughout. And that's simplistically what a dirty bomb is. And if you have a nuclear power plant, you can even make it much worse by, you know, blowing up some expend, you know, uranium uh, fuel cells or something like that. So this is something that has been on the books for years. It is something that the West has always feared. And uh, the Russians are making as much hay out of it as they can to uh, intimidate Ukraine, the West, and to sensitize their own uh, population that there is a threat out there that, you know, they're fallaciously saying is uh, Ukrainian based. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, dirty bombs are something we've always talked about in the context of terrorism, because they're, if, if you understand what you just explained, it's a conventional explosive that's been salted with radioactive material so that when it explodes, it either causes uh, radiation casualties if people take shrapnel into their bodies that happen to be radioactive, or just it will pollute with radiation the, the space that it occupies with that that explosive residue and make that perhaps unpopulable for some time. Absolutely. And just the effect is probably less uh, less important than the actual psychological impact of doing this. And so I think, you know, uh, you know, if this ever did happen, the impact on the psyche of this war, it would actually be a turning point for sure. Uh, General Fraser, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of people who've watched much closer than I have, uh, the Russian army's behavior in Syria point to the fact that in that conflict, it is pretty much standard practice, like page three from the Russian army manual, to threaten or, or allege that there will be false flag operations almost on a weekly basis there, and they never uh, come to fruition. Is this just more Russian talk, or do we actually have to be concerned? I think we should generally be concerned because from the get-go, this this war has been as much prosecuting against non-combatants and civilians as it has been against the Ukrainian Defense Forces. And we now have a new Russian commander coming out of Syria who is nicknamed General Armageddon, who just looks at everybody in Ukraine as a legitimate target in his mind, and he's just going to do whatever he can to intimidate, uh, terrorize, and, and try to kill so we, we can't ignore anything because Russia is bringing its playbook from Syria to Ukraine. Uh, well, let's pivot from there to uh, mm-hmm. Russia's attacks on civilian targets in Ukraine, which if they're intentional and there's no sort of spillover from a military target uh, would qualify as a, a war crime. Uh, Russia says it's not targeting civilian targets. Canada's own intelligence uh, apparatus says, no, it's pretty clear from all of the evidence that they are civilian infrastructure, uh, you know, bridges, uh, supply things that are used by civilians. 
not for the military, uh, places like uh, residential areas and uh, parks and power that serves the civilian community being targeted uh, frequently and cruise missile and other sort of indirect uh, targeted uh, weapon strikes over the last, uh, you know, it's accelerated over the last month or so. Uh, a, a report by Bellingcat, which is an online group that does a lot of extensive uh, research using data that they get from open sources and they literally buy on the black market for information in in Russia. Uh, you know, I'm not going to go through the details of this report on the targeting uh, group that is focusing these cruise missiles on their targets. It's very extensive, but it suggests to me that the idea that they're not targeting a civilian infrastructure is is just bollocks and that the idea that, you know, maybe could they possibly be hitting civilian infrastructure by mistake? It seems like they know what they're doing. You know, and the short answer is in war, you know, mistakes do happen. And so if this was a, a one of, a two of, yeah, we might just say it was a mistake. However, after six plus months, it is clear on any television station, on any report you see coming out of this country, they are deliberately targeting civilian targets with no military value. So this is a war crime. And there is no mistaken about this. This is a deliberate act by the Russian leadership uh, sanctioned by Putin to go after uh, civilians f- uh, for absolutely no value other than to terrorize or kill them. Uh, General Fraser, you were a uh, a combat leader at the operational strategic level, commanding Canadian uh, NATO American forces in Afghanistan. What's your take of what you're seeing in Ukraine right now and the Russian uh, effort? Uh, what should we be, we be looking to or expecting to see perhaps over the next uh, week or so in this war? Well, we should be expecting to see a lot more attacks on the uh, utilities grid system. Uh, with the aim of turning Ukraine dark and cold for the wintertime. We should also be seeing uh, a very, very big battle in Kherson. And I wouldn't rule out the Russians just yet. If we look at what the Ukrainians were able to do in Maripol, uh, the attacker has a disadvantage going into a city. And the more that that city is rubble, the, the more it favors the defender, which in this case happens to be the Russians. So that battle is going to carry on. Meanwhile, in the Northeast, we're going to be looking at what else can the Ukrainians do before winter. And so uh, this gets this gets really bad. And and these threats of of dirty bombs uh, are are worrisome. But the good news is you've got the defense ministers in the U.S. and in Russia talking to each other, probably trying to, to lower the temperature on all this political and rhetoric, because uh, this war is long from being over. Uh, we're going to be watching this for quite some time. You and I are going to be talking about it for a long time. David Fraser, uh, retired Major General, Canadian Army uh, Combat Leader of uh, NATO Forces in uh, Afghanistan. Thanks so much for your time today. Mark, thank you. Yeah, I keep I get texts at seven ten ten from people saying, "Yeah, you know, tell them the other side of the story. Russia says this is all propaganda from Ukraine. It's not. I mean, there's lots of evidence. If if you haven't checked out the website for Belling Cat, Belling Cat, it's one word." 
uh, do so. They do phenomenal investigations, and the ability to buy information from the black market in Russia is mind-boggling. Uh, this investigation, they tracked down, they identified about 30 people who are targeting all of the cruise missiles. They know where they work, they know where they live, they're tracking their cell phones, they know when they call, they know who they're talking to, they know what their decisions are. It is amazing. None of this stuff is happening by accident. When we come back, have you seen any of those slap face videos? Talk today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tui sitting in with you. Thanks very much for listening along. Have you ever heard of slap fighting? I, I saw this on the uh, on the list of uh, stories pitched. Uh, this one discovered by uh, Samantha Pope, the producer, and I thought, what the heck is this? And then I kind of just read the headline. I looked at the top of it and I thought. Is this this is that ridiculous thing that I see every once in a while? I don't spend much time, any time, on TikTok, but I see TikTok videos on Instagram, and you know, kids standing there slapping each other in the face, and it harkens back to a short scene about a slap bet that was discussed in a TV series you might be familiar with called How I Met Your Mother. What the hell's a slap bet? Whoever's right gets to slap the other person in the face as hard as they possibly can, but no rings. Yeah, so I saw that, and then it just seems to be kids standing there taking turns slapping each other in the face, and they, they I don't know, Tony Tedesco, you've seen some of these things, not sort of professional slap fighting, but, you know, kids competing on social media. Is there more to it than just slapping each other in the face for, for giggles? I've seen adults do it, and it's, I mean, on one hand, it's kind of uh, interesting to watch, to say the least, <laughs> uh, but it, it's vicious. So, I'd rather be in an MMA fight than be in a slap fight. It's ridiculous. Well, you you mentioned that, and news now comes out of uh, Nevada, where all things are legal. Uh, UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, Mixed Martial Arts uh, League, uh, President Dana White, recently got approval from the Nevada State Athletic Commission to move forward with what he calls the Power Slap League, where there will be professional slap fighting competitions held under the commission in Las Vegas. This seems just ridiculous. Here's a short trailer promoting uh, this league, the Power Slap League. Run it. Oh my goodness, what a slap! A hit from one of these guys is like a baseball bat to the face. They call him Dumpling, the Slap God. He's literally a farmer. is the three-time champion. He has uh, never lost. Co-Stress has one of the most powerful slaps I've ever seen. 
so my gut reaction to that is that this is one of these ridiculous made-up sports that the Americans are so good at. American gladiators, and they'll have the announcers talking about, uh, this guy is a farmer, but he's the three-time world champion. There's never been a world championship in American gladiator until they put it on TV, and they made up the backstory of these fictional characters. So I kind of think that this is a joke. And then I heard that my next guest, uh, you know, called the whole situation stupid, and I started to listen to why, and I thought, wow, this is not just stupid, it's dangerous. Dan Hardy joins us now. He's a a former mixed martial artist uh, from England. He called the Power Slap League stupid on Twitter. Dan Hardy, what's dangerous about this? they are basically just waiting to receive concussions. I mean, th- this is the this is the issue that people have had with combat sports for years and years. You know, boxing's dangerous because people are getting punched in the head. MMA's dangerous because people are getting punched in the head. But the difference is with, with those sports, and, and I will use that term quite clearly with, with MMA and boxing, the point is not to get hit in the head. The point is to hit the other person in the head. That's what makes it competitive. What makes slap fighting competitive is who can stand up after they've taken a concussive blow to the face that they did nothing to get out of the way of. I, I don't see the art in it. I don't see the sport in it. It looks to me like people trading concussions for money. And again, you've got one promoter who's going to be scraping all of this massive profit off the top and feeding off these people that want to be rich and famous for doing something that's going to really damage them in the long run. Yeah, Dan Hardy, when you put it that way, you know, it's it's the penny drops in my head because, yeah, people get hurt big time by getting hit in the head or in the face in other combative sports. But their point of being in the ring is to defend themselves from that. They spend a lot of time training to defend themselves from that. They have a problem and with, uh, you know, American Canadian style football where people are injured because it's not just a, you know, a contact sport. It's a collision sport. People bang their heads. But that's not the point of the sport. The point is to try to protect yourself from that. In this sport, you just stand there, and as the trailer said, you take a slap in the side of the face that is akin to getting a hit in the head with a baseball bat. There can't be a lot of skill involved in standing up to that, and it's got to be just concussion after concussion. I mean, the thing is, it's like, of course, motor racing is dangerous, NASCAR is dangerous, you know, people get injured, people get hurt, people can sometimes get killed doing those things. However, the, the point is, is, is the competition, the, the, the unfortunate, um, you know, uh, occupational hazard is that injuries do happen. And, and like, I'm, I'm an MMA fighter from back in the day when people didn't know what MMA was. I was constantly battling to try and get people to understand what this sport is and how much it means to us, how much we put into it. But then if you go, OK, well, if mixed martial arts or boxing is motor racing and there's the possibility of getting injured, but then... What's, what's the alternative to slap fighting? It's literally just driving a car into a wall and trying to stay alive. It, it, it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. If someone recognizes there's money to be made of people getting massively damaged by getting huge concussive slap, and if people think that it's okay because it's an open hand, let me assure you it's not. There's a, an MMA legend called Bash Rutten who used to be a UFC champion. He was a specialist in open hand strikes. It, it, you can generate just as much power and can be just as concussive and damaging. And if someone's not, they're just standing bracing for it. it it's, a, it's incredibly dangerous. And it's, it's one person making a load of money off a bunch of people taking damage. At the UFC make billions each year. They spend about $20 million on healthcare. 
like there's, there's a lot less damage in MMA. When the damage happens, of course it happens, but it's an occupational hazard. A concussion in slap fights is, is an occupational certainty, and that is something that we need to be really looking at. Is there any way, do you think, to make this safer? They spend a lot of time, maybe not as much as they should, arguably, in the NFL, trying to come up with a better helmet, better better rules. Uh, I'm sure in uh, boxing and other combative sports, they do the same thing, trying to figure out a way to have the sport but make it safer. How do you make it safer when the whole point is to just get hit in the head? I mean, the, the competitors, the contestants would, would ultimately have to go through the same screening process that any combat sports uh, a, a, a combatant would. They would have to have their brain scans. They would have to make sure that they are physiologically able to take that kind of damage. But it's the same with mixed martial arts and boxing. We have to have the brain scans, the eye tests. You know, there's lots of things that we have to, a lot of hurdles that we have to cross before we're able to compete. It, it's still, I could still have several fights. I've been knocked out once and I've had 50 professional fights. If I'm a slap fighter, I'm getting knocked out on, on a, a regular basis. It, it, is, it is a part of the sport. You can be guaranteed that you're going to be taking concussions. And my point when I'm fighting is to, and I know this might, might sound a bit strange, but my point is to give them the concussion and not receive one myself. In these circumstances, both people are receiving the concussion and it's who can take it the most. It, it's, a, it's a really weird, like, tough guy atmosphere. But ultimately, people want to be famous. They want Instagram followers. They want money in their pocket. And they'll get a very, very small percentage of the massive amount of profit that's being made off of them. I'm okay with anybody doing anything. Like, literally, as long as no one else is being hurt and mm-hmm. they don't want to be involved in it, I have no problem. People can do whatever sports they like. But this, this looks like it's feeding off the lowest, lowest common denominator, the people that want to be famous and they'll do anything for it. I, just, I don't see the art in it. I just see damage to humans yeah. who are getting taken advantage of. Dan Hardy, a former mixed martial artist uh, from England, uh, you called the league stupid on Twitter. I think you're right. Power slapping just doesn't make any sense to me. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, guys. Let's put it to a vote. one 1010 I'm not a guy who wants anything to be illegal. If you want to do something stupid, I think you should have the right to it. But if you were going to make, a, like, man, this just seems dumb. It just seems ill-advised. I can't imagine the lawsuits that are going to come down on UFC for this sport, which is going to just hurt people. The whole point seems to damage people's brain. What do you say? 855-633-1010. Should this be legal? Holding the politicians and pundits to account. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tui. Thanks for listening in. want you to weigh in on this one. A lot of you weighing in on the text board at 71010. But I'd love you to give me a call at one 1010 and tell me the <laughs> two things. One, would you watch professional power slapping? And do you think it should be legal 855-633-1010 cuz I'll tell you right now I'm a libertarian and I believe everything should be legal unless there's overwhelmingly compelling consensus amongst all of us to make it not 
But this thing, I could see me jumping in on the consensus of this is just stupid. This is a professional sport registered in Nevada. It's not new, but uh, UFC, the guys who bring you a professional mixed martial arts, uh, the biggest brand in that uh, sport, are bringing you the Power Slapping League. Here's a taste of their teaser. Oh my goodness, what a slap! guys is like a baseball bat to the face like a baseball bat to the face would you pay to watch that 855-633-1010 do you think it should be legal because they they're gonna make millions of dollars on this and it's not new it's not just dana white in the ufc uh there was a professional uh what did they call it a power slapping competition organized in uh Columbus Ohio in March Logan Paul boxer Arnold Schwarzenegger teamed up to create the slap fighting championship they see money in this but is there any art is there any skill involved i guess there's skill in hitting somebody but Literally, my guest in the last segment, uh, Dan Hardy, a former professional uh, mixed martial artist uh, from England who's called this league stupid, points out that in all other combative sports, the point is to try not to get hit in the head. You try to defend yourself. You want to hit the other guy in the head. That, that you know that's fair ba- fair play. But you try to avoid getting a concussion in this uh, sport. It's all about standing there and taking the hit. 855-633-1010. Would you watch this? Should it be legal? Here's Dan Hardy. They are basically just waiting to receive concussions. I mean, th- this, is the, this is the issue that people have had with combat sports for years and years. You know, boxing's dangerous because people are getting punched in the head. MMA's dangerous because people are getting punched in the head. But the difference is with, with those sports, and, and I will use that term quite clearly with, with MMA and boxing, the point is not to get hit in the head the point is to hit the other person in the head that's what makes it competitive what makes slap fighting competitive is who can stand up after they've taken a concussive blow to the face that they did nothing to get out of the way of I, I don't see the art in it i don't see the sport in it it looks to me like people trading concussions for money and again you've got one promoter who's going to be scraping all of this massive profit off the top and feeding off these people that want to be rich and famous for doing something that's going to really damage them in the long run we're just learning about the damage uh, to footballers, you know, football players, North American-style football, uh, who not just from concussions, but from chronic traumatic encephalopathy. You know, the fact that their brains just get eaten away from constant contact, uh, it's a problem. Mike uh, texts in at 71010. Love to hear your thoughts at one eight five five six three three ten ten. But Mike uh, texts in saying, I guess the whole point of this sport is you got to go first. It's it's probably kind of like professional pool. It's all about winning the coin toss. You take the first hit, you win. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in pool, I love to laugh at them because, you know, whoever breaks wins because they're so good they never miss a shot. Uh, Al texts in at 71010 saying power slapping. Both are barbaric to me, including MMA. Common denominators, both consenting adults. I won't watch it, but it should be legal. Should it be legal? Let me know. one 855 Let's go to London, Ontario. Talk to Scott. Should this be legal? Would you watch it? Watch it or not. Um, whether it should be legal? Sure. Um, but being a, a martial artist myself and, and, and been in many uh, in competition fights and whatnot, I, I agree with Dan Hardy. You spend your, your whole time during the fight 
avoiding trying to get hit, <laughs> not not standing there taking a hit, which I think is very dangerous. Is and there I any way, gonna... Scott, do you think that you could learn how to take a hit in a way that would be less damaging to you? Could there be any art or skill in this at all? I don't believe so, no. no. Um, also, being a healthcare worker, I was a healthcare worker for 39 years. We used to see a lot of, a lot of um, even the kids coming in with concussions and it, it is, I think it's just going to be. I think it's going to be short lived, to be honest with you. I, and I so, so will the competitors. Well, that too. Yes, yes, for sure. And it, I just think it's going to be. Um, I, I think somebody's making money on it, and it's going to be. It's going to be short lived for sure. Yeah, I kind of tend to agree with you. Thanks very much, Scott. I'd be interested in hearing from you at eight five five six three three. I wonder who's going to insure this. Like, I wonder where they're going to get the insurance because they're going to get. This is based in the United States. They sue for everything. Like, they're going to get sued the first time one of these competitors has a sniffle. And 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 they'll say, oh, well, this is because I got hit in the head and I was let into this. Uh, you know, I signed a waiver, sure, but I didn't know I was being taken advantage. Multi-billion dollar sport, signing me up, promising me the world. Uh, I didn't get it. Uh, like, who's going to underwrite that from an insurance perspective? I just don't see it. Professional power slapping. People standing there taking turns to slap each other in the side of the face with their open palm. But still, anybody who studied high school physics understands torque and leverage and the fact the the amount of force that's applied, whether it's a fist or a palm, you're going to hurt somebody. As it said in the teaser, like getting hit in the face with a baseball bat, this is just dumb. Like, I don't see the art in it, but maybe people, I mean, some people laugh at people falling down, those videos of people getting obviously horribly injured on skateboard accidents. I don't know. Oakville uh, listener texts in saying, who's going to pay the long-term health care costs of people in slap fights? Well, in the United States, nobody. Uh, or the insurance company for UFC, if they're sponsoring it, I guess. But they're going to, I mean, the premiums is, are going to be incredible. Uh, listener text in, they can do whatever they want, but it sounds stupid, not entertaining at all. This just shows how low our culture has devolved to bring on the asteroid. Uh, I hope not. I'm, I, I have an aversion to asteroids. I'm, I'm asteroidophobic. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I just don't see this being the highlight of the human species. A professional power slapping league. Yeah, I can't. I, I don't know. Um, but somebody, on the other hand, says, hey, it's so exciting to watch. I guess, I mean, there are videos all over the Internet of people standing there slapping themselves in the face, uh, sometimes with big rubber hands, I guess, to sort of make it less painful because obviously it's painful. Uh, another listener texting in to say, let's not allow it in Canada. Uh, we have very different regulations here. I could see us maybe not permitting this in Canada. It took forever to license uh, mixed martial arts in Ontario, and it took a... You know, in fact, in 2010, that happened, and there was a lobby effort. There was a big demonstration at the legislature in the heart of Toronto uh, with people demanding that mixed martial arts be made legal in Ontario. And you know what? I don't really like watching it. I don't like people hurting themselves like that, but I see the art in it. You know, I watched one fight, and the guy that was, uh, I think it was George St. Pierre, uh, Canadian, and he was having the snot beat out of him. He was way on his back and being beaten up by this guy. And then he pulled some move that was just masterful. And suddenly he's on top and he's won. So I see the art in it. But this, I don't. Mark Tui, thanks very much for your time. 
Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Tony.